0: Welcome to episode 41 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is December 20th. And in our episode, it's just going to be the two of us. And we're going to talk about an article that we just had published in the American Historical Review, which we'll likely abbreviate throughout the episode as AHR.
1: Right. So we mentioned in the last few episodes that we were going to discuss this topic and we thought it would be a good episode to wrap up our podcast for 2020. So we're actually going to record one more episode this year, but we won't release it until after the new year.
0: Given that we talk about everyone else's work, we thought it was due time to bring many of the threads we've mentioned in one place, since a lot of this work touches upon some of the ideas we've talked about. Turn of the 20th century bacteriology, a favorite of Lee's. The modern plague outbreak around the same time. Lee's actual favorite, which is the media, and then stuff we've talked about such as memory and forgiving, local effects of pandemics, and even the myths and legends we think about when words like the Black Death come up. Yeah, apparently I have a lot of favorites, according to Merle. But yeah,
1: today we are going to go back and forth and discuss it together as a project that was really two years in the making and comes out of some of our other work on the Justinianic plague. So in our previous work, we investigated the late antique evidence for a plague. So that is to say between the 6th and 8th centuries CE. But this new article explores the making and building of the Justinianic plague over the 20th century. And it's why, as Merle said, we've become so interested as pre-modern historians in some very modern topics. But before we begin, let's do our usual catching up with COVID and where we are and hear about anything new. So let's start off with you, Merle,
0: in Annapolis. So how are things over there? So I went into D.C., which is not too far of a drive, to meet a friend for lunch. It was a very tasty lunch. We had brisket sandwiches, Lee. Not your type of thing, I know, because you're a vegetarian. But it was actually the first time I've been in a real city, I guess you would say, since the pandemic began. I mean, I don't consider Annapolis like a big city.
1: So what was your experience in DC? And was everyone masked?
0: Yeah, everyone was masked. It was just very strange because there were so many more people obviously around. And so I couldn't, you know, just cross the street and go to the other side. So that was obviously quite different. Did you dine indoors? No, we did take out and sat on my friend's roof deck, which has a fire pit in between. And what's happening in Israel these days? Are you still opening back up? Do you have more malls you can now go to? Yeah, so we
1: started vaccinating. Actually, I think yesterday was the, the day in which our prime minister was the first to receive the vaccine. He actually got it on on live TV, which was controversial for some obvious reasons. We can talk about that maybe in some other episode. Yeah, but more more seriously, I think in parallel to the vaccination starting off here, there's also been an increase in the number of cases we have per day. Maybe we're going to see a third wave. It seems so, um, at least based on how things currently are. And the third update I have is that we've been hearing from Britain that they there is some kind of new strain of COVID. And I'm not entirely sure how reliable this is, but apparently quite a few people are speaking about that.
0: Yeah, I was reading uh, Vincent Racaniello, who came on this podcast a number of months ago, his take on this, and there's some deep problems with the reporting in the sense of this new strain has been around for a while. It's simply the one that's taken over because it's somewhat more easily transmissible, but it doesn't mean that more people are dying. Um, It's just something that's spreading more rapidly.
1: Yeah. So the way it's spoken about here is that, oh, this is going to be another big thing that's, that's coming our way. So Israel is currently shutting down most
0: inwards flights, yeah, no, I've seen that throughout most of the continent, but it's, as with the early spread of COVID back in February or March, it's too late for that. So, to make you feel better, Lee. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, I guess. So let's begin discussing the article, which in a sense is our latest published work in a long arc of our work on the Justinianic plague. We suggest that interested listeners should refer to actually our second episode from way back in March, if you remember back then, Lee which focuses on the Justinianic plague and the state of the research as of mid-2020. Yeah, that actually reminds me that we do need to update that episode, even if only because of its poor sound quality. That was entirely your fault for having a terrible microphone, by the way. (laughs) And it is, Lee, I should remind you, our most popular episode and gives listeners, I think, a nice deep dive into the Justinianic plague, but maybe you can give us the 10-second reminder for the listeners.
1: Yeah, so first, I'm actually happy to have a much better microphone at this point. But to give listeners an overview of the Justinianic plague, the Justinianic plague is a term that scholars often use to describe the first plague pandemic. And when we say first plague pandemic, we refer to the same plague, the same disease that caused the medieval Black Death and the late 19th century, early 20th century third pandemic. Now, very briefly, Some scholars believe that the Justinianic plague killed some half the population of the Mediterranean world and that it had catastrophic effects in the areas it reached. It reached areas from, let's say, modern England to Ethiopia over two centuries, so mid-6th till the mid-8th
0: centuries. Yeah, those are more or less the basics of the Justinianic plague.
1: Right. So our article titled The Justinianic Plague and the Global Pandemics, The Making of the Plague Concept is published in the December issue of the American Historical Review, which is a general history journal. So a journal that covers all time periods and all geographic areas. So Merle, why don't you begin by describing why and also how we wrote this article?
0: We wrote it after our first article on the topic and as I looked back and was doing a little tweet stormly, I realized this is our fifth article in about 16 months on the topic, which is quite impressive, but also insane in some ways. Five articles
1: in, in 16 months or, or so does seem short, but of course, we've been working on this for a bit longer, I think
0: three years, almost almost exactly at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. But we wrote this one after the past and present article was done which looked at the late antique evidence for plague. But we got curious about how so many of the ideas that everyone kept talking about, whether it's rats or climate or the length of the pandemic lasting two centuries, as Lee pointed out, were just made into facts that we all know, right? So if you go to Wikipedia, it just states these things. And if you remember, Lee, we originally called this pieces of plague. Since these were the pieces, we couldn't figure out how they actually worked into the past and present article. And uh, do you remember that first storyboard we made about this, where we put all these things together?
1: Yeah. So we actually had to find the storyboard app that would allow both of us to collaborate at the same time and build this online because we were we we're very rarely in the same place geographically. We always collaborated oh. online. But we use this online app really to add in the scholarship of, let's say, the last 350 years or so on the Justinianic plague, and we just connected it through a massive graph, really, connecting articles to articles that cite them. So the methodology we chose for this was to read literally everything we could find that was ever published on the Justinianic plague. And there are maybe a few hundred articles in total on that. I think we're more or less comprehensive till the late 19th century. And we have quite a few earlier studies of plague as well.
0: Yeah, what we found was that over the last century or so there haven't really been any new arguments put forward about the Justinianic plague. Instead, it's very similar issues simply came in and out of academic discussion, we might say, every generation or every few generations. So in a sense, scholars often thought they were moving forward by finding some new evidence But in reality, they tended to return to ground that had been covered, say, 50 years in the past, and everyone just forgot that there had been a debate about this.
1: And this was really shocking to me when when we started working on this to see that the same arguments that we were having now were arguments that people were having, let's say, 40 or 50 years in the past, and then like, let's say, 100 years in the past as well. So Merle, maybe a good place to start discussing the actual article is by... Telling our listeners who might not want to read the 30 or 40 or 50 pages that it ends up being, what's our thesis? What's the actual argument of this article? What are we saying here?
0: So some of this will probably be somewhat familiar with hints we've dropped in various podcasts, but our article tracks how medical practitioners and doctors, who also doubled as colonial administrators very often, constructed the first historical plague pandemic, the Justinianic Plague. And it looks at about 150 years of people writing about this late ancient pandemic from the turn of the 20th century to really last year or so, to show how it was gradually made into a massive historical pandemic that's now said to have lasted for this 200-year period from 540 until 750.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to point out here that we're looking at how what we call today the Justinianic plague was created. So how this became a concept, how this became an idea, how this became an event, a historical event, let's say.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, right? The perceived size and impact of this pandemic has grown significantly over time. So what it was said to do in 1900 or 1950 or 2010 is very different. And one thing we notice throughout all of this is that it's gained what we call its own agency and causal force, right? That the pandemic itself is said to do things.
1: Right. So- Using the agency of plague, scholars of late antiquity now use plague to explain different changes. And these changes could be demographic or political or social or economic or cultural. And by these changes, scholars can provide answers to questions such as why did the Roman Empire fall or why did Islam conquer the Middle East and so on. Now, what we realized is that there's a gap between evidence from the time period, so evidence from late antiquity, from those centuries, let's say mid-6th to mid-8th centuries, of what plague does there, there and then, and what we, modern people, think plague does in terms of these massive changes. And the gap, this gap between what plague does and what we think plague does, is what we've called in this article, the plague concept.
0: Yeah, I think that neatly shows kind of how we developed this in many ways, very organically, I would say, out of the first couple of articles we wrote, which were focused on the late antique evidence. And we saw this disconnect between that and the modern evidence. So what is then the plague concept, Lee? Do you want to give us maybe a few more details on it?
1: Right. So in simplest terms, again, the plague concept would be the gap between what we think plague does and what it actually does in history and the sources. Now, The plague concept is the unchanging, timeless idea of really capitalized, the plague, that causes historical change with little or no human interference and can be used to explain historical events. So when we just say the word plague, we tie together, or people today tie together, independent plague outbreaks to explain historical events. But really at the heart of plague concept is the mass mortality in the past across a wide geographic area. And this allows you to make the jump from partial evidence
0: for this event to systematic changes. Yeah, it's clearly, I think, based on an idea of the Black Death, or the Black Death in Europe, I guess I should say, right? That this was a massive pandemic that somehow created massive systemic change. And this is a problematic notion, which we've pointed to in actually our Myth and Legends episode. But you often see this all over the place, right? Literature, newspapers, and writing from really the turn of the 20th century to today, right? That the Black Death changed everything, right? And this was why people were writing about this during the beginning of COVID. And as Lee knows, perhaps my favorite example is this great CNN article that is titled, Two people just got the plague in China. Yes, the Black Death plague, right? And so that shows you that people make this leap from two people getting plague, which is still around in the world, to the Black Death, as if these two people are somehow a harbinger of the entire world changing. And all these destructive outcomes, as this article points out, right, it's two herders who just got plague. You don't need mass mortality, massive pandemic, as modern plague outbreaks have shown, but only what we think the word plague does kind of drives all our thinking.
1: Right. So I think, again, the, the issue here is that we take the word plague or we take what plague is and we add to it. We add a lot of weight to it, just as in the article you just
0: cited. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at, Lee, is that the stakes of this plague debate are actually pretty significant, Right? I mean, if you think about the stakes of our argument, stepping back from a second of the details, which we'll get into in a minute, you have a past and a present stakes, which is to say, in a late antique setting, this is a fascinating period that includes the fall of Rome, as you pointed out, the rise of Islam, and the emergence of Europe as a distinctive entity, right? And so if you want to argue that the plague caused or pushed a lot of these changes, that's something that's often in the literature.
1: Right so so again late antiquity the time in which plague happens is the time period
0: in which all these massive changes are happening. I also think now during covid there are a series of larger questions here that have been raised and people are talking about I think constantly or at least in the background, right? Do pandemics and diseases more broadly change history? Right? Do they change social, economic, cultural ideas? And even more so, do they change the world we're all going to be living through in the next 5, 10, 20 years, right? I think ultimately we didn't set out when we started doing the research for COVID to be at the heart of this debate. I mean, we wrote it and finished most of the research before COVID, but that's clearly become a series of questions that will be part of this debate.
1: Yeah, and I think there are also other questions we can ask, Right. For example, how are these events created in in modern discourse by modern historians looking back into the past and drawing the outlines of an event such as what we describe today as the Justinianic plague. But you could also do that for other events as well. The second plague pandemic today, for example, is sometimes said to begin in the mid-14th century and continue all the way till the mid-19th century. And you can, and some people do, describe all of that as the Black Death, for example.
0: Yeah, and I think this has become ever more powerful in various "quote unquote" popular media, right? Which is why we've done episodes on movies or video games. Yeah, I know video games are a, a personal favorite of yours, but in, in a serious note, you know this is why movies like. Panic in the Streets, or Contagion, or Outbreak, or Camus the Plague, all of these things have helped build this plague concept over time, right? So as we ingest this literature, and we think about it, and we really let it seep into everything we believe, this pushes a lot of these ideas forward. And we don't talk about this explicitly in the article, but it's something we're working on at the moment.
1: Right. And actually, to give a personal experience, for example, so before we actually got into plague. I remember listening to talk about plague, about the Black Death specifically. And the speaker there said that plague actually continues to exist in our world today. And I was shocked. I I had no idea that was still the case. And I was also quite a bit scared because I, I assumed that it could still affect us, that this Black Death, and I was living in the United States at the time. And to discover that the United States still had plague in it, in the wild was even more shocking. I was like, this could still happen to us.
0: So I think that's a good background to perhaps the most theoretical part of the article. And I know Lee, you and theory are not best friends, but I think- Well, you are, you definitely are. (laughs) I like my theory, but I do think that's the most powerful idea to perhaps take away from the article, right? Is the plague concept, this gap between what we have evidence for and what we think. And so that's how we tried to explain it. But maybe you can turn our attention and and briefly we can talk about how the idea was built and changed over time.
1: Yeah. So one thing we realized pretty early on is that there's no one person or institution who we might say set out to create the idea of the Antique Plague as a catastrophe and then spread it to other people. So there's no bad person here. Constructing the plague did serve a number of different needs at different points. So it's actually a process in which many different people and many different disciplines within academia, outside of academia, work together. And and they all have an, an interest in creating or constructing this plague.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Lee. And it's a fairly obvious and maybe banal point, to say that texts and sources and research are written in their own times with your own questions and your own mindset, right? But our work really examines how ideas about plague have shifted over time and how those shifts have affected research. Now, one of the things we've thought about as COVID hit and as we
1: started this podcast and have been reflecting upon COVID is how COVID is going going to change this plague concept. And we obviously don't know, but potentially, this might end up having a significant effect.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. So we'll see where this goes. But I think we might divide research on the Justinianic plague into three vague time periods. And these are time periods that probably are very familiar to our listeners, Lee, because we've spent a lot of time focusing down on them. And the first is this turn of the 20th century moment, Lee's favorite bacteriology, where we've had a number of guests on, whether it be Jacob or Christos Lanteros, This is the 1890s to 1920s, where scientists and doctors, who I said were often colonial administrators, became deeply concerned about plague from its globalization in the 1894 or thereabouts onward.
1: Right. So, so these scientists and doctors are the people who eventually define themselves as living through a plague pandemic, through what they describe as the third plague pandemic. They. Find a beginning, which is somewhere in the mid 19th century. And they live through it. This plague pandemic may end in 1959. It may continue later. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious to say at this point that any attempts to limit these things in time can only be partially successful. But the third pandemic, or the the, the plague that these administrators and, and scientists and doctors live through, this plague devastates India and reaches all the continents, right? So Australia, Europe, Africa, South America, and even the Western coast of the United States. Now the scientists wanted to stop the spread of plague. And they were of course afraid of the return of the Black Death, as we have implied earlier on. Even though the Black Death never actually got close to returning. Death's mortality varied greatly. So in India, we had a very significant death toll over several decades, somewhere around 12 million people. But in the United States, for example, we have about 300 deaths over 40 years or so.
0: Yeah, I think behind some of this, and haven't found someone explicitly pointing this out, is that quote-unquote backward India, right, this non-modern place, is like the late antique world, right, because they both are not hygienic, dirty,
1: et cetera, et cetera. I've actually seen that comparison made explicitly. I mean, not in the sense of of hygiene and, and disease specifically, but definitely in the case of mortality. So for example, I've seen Roman demographers, demographers of ancient Rome, that is, who say that, yeah, life expectancy in classical Rome was probably similar to life expectancy in turn of the 20th century India and China.
0: Yeah, I hadn't actually noticed that, Lee, but that's maybe something we can draw out in a little more detail somewhere else moving forward. But perhaps the key figure we always point to, and other people have pointed to as well, Jacobs talked about him as well, and Christos as well, is this guy, William Simpson, who's a a doctor, a colonial administrator. And in 1905, in a famous book, He writes that the Justinianic plague is, quote, the first well-authenticated pandemic of plague. And then he lays out the other two pandemics as well.
1: Yeah, and that's the first time that we found, at least, that someone describes the Justinianic plague as a pandemic, as a plague pandemic. Now, Simpson, that Merle just mentioned, alongside his other fellow scientists and doctors, all used the pandemic, the idea of there being a past pandemic, to garner support for what they wanted to get in the present. So they wanted to stop the third pandemic that they saw around them. And they needed to convince decision-makers, politicians, and so on, to help them, to provide them with the resources they needed, and to realize that what they were facing was a massive threat to civilization as they knew it.
0: Yeah. So that's the first stage of people working on the Justinianic plague. The second stage was, we'll call it, say, the 1920s to the 1950s. This is something we touched upon way back in the day with Thomas Zimmer, where we talked about scientists who believed that they had won, right? So the most famous example is my favorite book, I think ever titled, is by a guy named Fabian Hurst called, quote, The Conquest of Plague. And there's others as well.
1: This is really representative, right? I mean, it's, it's part of this mid-20th century idea of science being the solution to all humanity's problems, really. Science bringing us to a new golden age of humanity. And in the broader context, in a broader historical context, the, the scientists of the mid-20th century could argue that unlike the people in the quote-unquote medieval past, they, that is to say the modern scientists, were able to stop plague with the help of modern public health and modern medicine. So things could have been much worse, but they weren't because they stopped it. And this is a very optimistic period, just as Merle's favorite book, The Conquest of Plagues
0: title. The third stage is when historians actually get involved for the first time. So this is actually the interesting point that I think we figured out, Lee, was that historians weren't involved in really researching the Justinianic Plague until the late 1960s. And what they actually do is they take both the Simpson, everyone's going to die narrative and the Hearst, we've won narrative, and they built upon this past as bleak and it couldn't be stopped and made it into a bigger deal than it had been ever before.
1: Right, and I think well, it's actually not obvious at all that historians would pick this up so late. Right, you would expect that historians should have been interested in, in this earlier on, especially if this was part of discourse among the, the scientists, and for for example, but they weren't. And I think it's it's important to note, and maybe a future contribution might might try to explain why. Why weren't historians interested in this earlier on?
0: And that the historians really took off with this paradigm of destructiveness starting in the 60s, but really picking up from, say, the 80s and especially the 90s afterward from some of the things we've talked about, whether it be the AIDS pandemic, whether it be uh, the end of this conquest narrative and others.
1: Right. And this ties into some other episodes we've had in the past. For example, the movies episode, which looks at how movies of, of infectious diseases become much bigger in the 90s and even more so in the early 2000s. And that trend mirrors the same similar trends, infectious disease research, and more specifically research into the Justinianic plague.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting overlap that I think needs to be done a lot more. We talked about this with Guy last week, but that pre-modern historians need to think, I think, perhaps more broadly in terms of influences. And I should say on a personal note, one thing that was very influential to me, Lee, was I gave an early version of this talk, more of the late antique evidence from our colleague, Ned Schoolman, who teaches at the University of Nevada, Reno. And an undergrad came up to me afterward and asked me, the simplest question, which is why did he think that plague changed history? And I didn't have an answer to this, but I think that explains kind of the plague concept in a nutshell. So that traced out the idea of what the plague concept is, the arguments of the paper, the stakes of the paper, and the overall story. But what is the plague concept look like an action is maybe an interesting question. Right. So
1: the plague concept has three components, let's say. I mean, we call them features in the article, and we've actually discussed the terminology way longer than we should have. And these features are core components of the plague concept. These features are chronology, mortality, and geography. Chronology meaning How long does the plague last? Mortality being obviously how many people does the plague kill? And geography meaning how widely does it spread? And the trends are pretty simple. Over time, plague lasts for longer and longer. So as we move over the 20th century, people looking into the past describe the plague as being maybe first that they begin with, let's say, 50 years or 60 years. And at the end of the 20th century, they finish off with over two centuries. Mortality similarly increases over time from many people to half the population, let's say, or even higher. A hundred million people, I think, is, is the highest I've seen. And plague turns up everywhere. So if we start off as plague essentially surrounding the Mediterranean, so today we have evidence or arguments that plague exists elsewhere as well, anywhere from England, to Ethiopia, and Germany, and Scandinavia, Yemen, Persia, and so on.
0: Yeah, I think you've neatly laid them out. And maybe I can just give a couple examples, right? So the chronology, for example, we have very good evidence from the 540s of an outbreak, especially in Constantinople. But what we tend to do is to take the evidence from Constantinople and just apply it everywhere else. If you have a chronicle a century later that says there was a disease, we take the evidence from Constantinople and we just stick it on that as if they're the same thing.
1: So when you say we have a chronicle a century later that talks about a disease, what does that chronicle or source or later source actually tell us?
0: How many details do these things actually give us? Usually not much, right? So they'll have one-liners that will say something like, a disease broke out in Italy, right? And from that, we're supposed to infer that it's a plague outbreak that devastates everyone. Or we have letters from Pope Gregory the Great, who was writing to a colleague in North Africa. And he said, oh, I heard that there was a disease that broke out recently. And this has been said to be plague. So what
1: we scholars have been doing, scholars, broadly speaking, have been doing is is really to take... These later events that may or may not have been plagued, may or may not have had significant effects, significant mortality, for example, take whatever we know from the first and maybe most significant outbreak, 542 in Constantinople, and copy-paste, for lack of a better term, whatever we know from that, from the original outbreak, onto these much more vague outbreaks that we don't actually know all that much about.
0: Yeah. So my favorite one, and I think your favorite one, Lee, is Sicily where we have one inscription that we actually can't date to a particular year. It actually dates to a basically a century and it says three boys died. And there's an assumption that this is dated to 542. And there's also an assumption that they must've died of plague. And that is the way in which we assume that plague hit all of Sicily.
1: Yeah. So, so I'll just add that they also die, I think in the same month or so and, As you just said, Merle, because of the plague concept, we just assume that that represents plague or that they did die of plague. And if they died of plague, plague reached reached Sicily. And this is why, for example, in the latest map of where plague actually reached, all of Sicily in 542 is colored, as to say that plague reached and devastated Sicily.
0: The other thing that I think we flesh out, and this is another word we had many, many arguments about, Lee is what we call plague truisms. We actually debated this term. Neither of us were in love with it, but it was the best of, of terms that we could come off <laughs> with. And what we meant here are, again, things, facts, ideas about plague outbreaks that we all have buried somewhere in the back of our minds that we associate with plague, but there's actually no late antique evidence connecting them directly to plague outbreaks. And they don't tell you anything about mortality. They certainly don't tell you anything about cultural or economic changes. And these are things that we often think about. So that they are rats, climate, and paleogenetics. And maybe we'll talk about rats and climate today, Lee, because I know those are your favorites. You love rats, don't you? Oh, you like
1: rats. I remember one of the the first talks we had you were shocked that rats were called ratus Rattus, and you're trying to make jokes about that, which were not very funny, but go on. But, but okay, let's walk us through, Merle. Walk us through what what's the connection between rats and plague, and why do we assume
0: that there is such a strong connection? So the rat-plague connection comes from, famously, the third pandemic, which is the turn of the 20th century one. This is found out by Simon, who finds out that fleas and the rats that the fleas are on seem to be the best way in which plague is spread, right? He figures this out in the 1890s. And within about a decade, most of the world kind of buys this. So this is, Mike Van was on and he has his wonderful book, obviously about problems with catching rats in Vietnam. But this is why people were into killing all these rats because they believed it was the rat. So this is another example, right, of people in the
1: 20th century seeing rats or associating rats with plague in their times and reading rats back into the past. So they assume that if rats are so important to plague in, let's say, 1900, they must have also been important in, let's say, 542.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's two major issues with this assumption. One is, is that from the modern evidence, we know that there's hundreds of species that actually carry the plague, right? This is something Susan Jones touched upon, that there are marmots famously or giant gerbils, which are apparently not giant, I've now learned, but any of these can pass along plague, So that's kind of an issue. And then the second thing is we actually have no evidence of rats carrying plague in late antiquity, and actually almost no evidence of rats, period, right? Whether it be archaeological or literary.
1: I think there's one literary case in which someone, John of Ephesus actually, he, he mentions something that could be mice or could be rats, and that they die during plague, but they die along many other animals. I think he has horses and dogs and so on.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other thing about rats that I've found funnier, I guess we could say over time is that even if you find evidence for rats, we don't have evidence that the plague was in the rats. And even if we, I guess, take the bones from the rats and test them from ADNA, which I think is possible, no one actually could then tell you that those rats gave the humans plague. So I don't know what we're doing here.
1: I think it's it's the plague concept in action. And you mentioned that I, I like video games, so I'll actually give an example of a video game that I, I show in some of my talks. So there is actually a, a video game about the Black Death. It's obviously very fictional. But there, rats are portrayed as plague, as really plague, being the, the embodiment of plague. And instead of having a few rats, I don't know, lurking in the shadows somewhere, that video game shows multiple times swarms of I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands of rats just swarming over people and like land piranhas just eating all their flesh in the in a matter of seconds, really.
0: That sounds quite revolting, but thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other plague truism is another thing that people associate with disease a lot, which is climate. And this one's my favoritely. If you like the rats, then I think the climate's mine.
1: I think you like the flip, right? There's like a flipping point that, that you really like.
0: Yeah. So what Lee is referring to is, as with so much of this plague concept, much of it is framed around the Indian evidence. And so what's the climate in India like? Well, it's hotter and humider than Europe. And so what you had people say for much of a century was that plague spread best in hot and humid kind of rainy climates usually. And people tried all types of things and made a whole bunch of suggestions. As far as I can tell, most of them just generally made up on the spot, but they tried stuff and they always assumed it was hot and humid was the baseline idea.
1: Yeah, I think this is actually an important point, right? So When you try, when you as a scholar try to understand what factors influenced plague in the past, you look to your sources. They don't tell you anything about climate. So you look to a rough modern day equivalent, which would be the third pandemic. And if the third pandemic affected India so badly as it did and didn't affect other places, you could make the argument that it's based on The climate of India. So this warm climate.
0: Yeah, I think that's very much correct. And sometimes people are explicit about this and sometimes they're not, and they just kind of string it into what they're doing. Which I think that's where the problem really comes. Yeah. So this idea is pretty standard until The first study is published in 2011 that points out that actually it seems like the world gets a little cooler in the late antique period. And then in 2016, there's better evidence of this and people coin what's called the late antique little ice age, which starts in the year 536 because of a series of volcanic eruptions. And that is now connected to the outbreak of the plague.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's an obvious correlation in time here. And so on one hand, you have a very distinct cooling phase and five years after that cooling phase, you get plague. I think it's only natural to assume or to guess or to hypothesize that both of these are somehow connected.
0: This has led to a series of articles stating that the year 536 was the worst year to be alive. And I've seen this debate pop back up on Twitterly since COVID. So people are now debating 2020 versus 536.
1: (laughs) No, but I mean, to bring things back to the discussion earlier, I think the flip that we mentioned earlier is really 2011. So until 2011, all the scholarship or almost all the scholarship on the Justinianic plague associates it with warm and humid climate. And after the 2011 study, the scientific study comes out and tells us that, you know, actually, that period was a much colder period rather than warmer and and more humid period. So scholarship just does 180 really and completely changes the paradigm. So after 2011, cold is associated with plague rather than warm and humid climate.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show, I think, how embedded the idea of the plague concept is, right? That your idea of what happens doesn't change even if the evidence you now have is completely different.
1: Right. And I think that's an an important point because one of the things that we've noticed, and, and we kind of mentioned this earlier on in this episode, is that many of the arguments we've had are arguments that others have had over the past century, really. And one of the things we've noticed reading these old arguments is the tenacity to which plague as an idea was held. So In a sense, it's impossible to reject plague simply because it's such a strong idea that that we have or such an attractive idea, really.
0: Yeah, it's a very sexy, simple explanation for a series of extremely complex questions, ideas, and problems that arise. And that is the plague concept. (laughs) Thanks for that pitch, Lee. I just pointed out, these connections between 536 and 2020 is the worst year to be alive. Obviously, the comparison between the two have to do with disease and pandemics. So how has your thinking changed at all, Lee, since COVID? I know we talk about this, I think, in like one paragraph in the article because they just didn't have the ability to change at that point. But do you have personal thoughts here?
1: Yeah, so maybe a good place to start would be an article – an an op-ed really that we wrote for the Washington Post in early February, 2020, where we pointed out that maybe we shouldn't assume that all pandemics would behave like the Black Death.
0: Yeah, I have a vague memory of sometime in April and May, Lee, where you were worried that this article was not going to hold up during COVID. Do you still feel that way?
1: No, I think it actually does hold. It actually holds pretty well, definitely compared to other estimates that people have made in that period. So, the February, March 2020 period.
0: Yeah, the article suggested that the Black Death had really become the quintessential pandemic that frames how we were thinking back in February and the problems with that already in February. And I think those have only increased. The
1: argument we made back in February 2020 was that we shouldn't expect COVID to behave like the Black Death. We shouldn't expect COVID to kill a third, half, most of the population of the world, even though that was what I would say many, maybe most people feared back then.
0: Yeah, I think when people were trying to be more hopeful back in March, there was also a number of silver linings thrown around. It's something we've talked about before, but that suddenly there'd be a reduction in inequality, right? We were all very excited that the increased inequality in America somehow would be reduced.
1: Another of these ideas, building on the comparison between the Black Death and COVID, was that to say, oh, the Black Death was horrible and and bad, but look what happened afterwards, the Renaissance. So maybe after COVID, which which was also going to be bad, we might get, I don't know, a Renaissance 2.0 or something.
0: Yeah, I think that's a key idea. And what at least I've taken from both doing this podcast and from just reading the news is a number of topics that we've touched upon throughout this podcast, which is that the local experiences and these micro stories are, I think, very important, right? I mean, what, if you remember, AJ talked about when it came to Kansas City's jurisdictions a few weeks ago, that basically blew your mind, Lee. I mean, I could see your face you were just shocked essentially by the complicated jurisdictional questions.
1: It's a representative case study of of the very different local effects that the same big, broad event could have. And in our case, COVID-19, but if we look in the past, we could swap that for the Black Death or the Justinianic plague. So these large scale events really affect different people, different communities in very different ways. And that's why we actually have in our intro section that small segment in which each of us and our guests keep talking about how we we're experiencing plague in our in our local communities.
0: Yeah, it actually goes to an interesting point, Lee, which is most of this work has been, I would say, fairly organic in the sense of. I never really had a plan from the beginning. Maybe you had a grand strategy. I mean, I think things have developed (laughs) over time. But, you know, I think we had planned just to write the first article in past and present, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. So I wish I could say that we had a particular (laughs) strategy we've been pursuing. And we have been accused of this, actually. But I can firmly state that I never thought this would take over what we did as much as it has.
1: Right. And I think this specific article is maybe the best example of that, right? I mean, as you said earlier on, this was essentially all the pieces of plague that we couldn't find any other place to put them. So we just looked at them as a group together and realized that they actually tell a pretty interesting story themselves.
0: Yeah, I think it in many ways developed both out of the past and present article, but actually in some ways out of the very historiographical, neutral article that we have in Byzantine and Modern Greek Studies that's just a survey of the field for the last 20 years on Justinianic plague research. And that forced us to read everything and I think first realize some of these weird things that were just lingering.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, we've had, so I don't know if you remember this, but in I think one or two of our talks, we have this graph that shows how we reach these ideas and which ideas translated into which articles. It's becoming more and more complex at this point. But yeah, it has been
0: organic. And I think thats it's important to point that out. So I guess at the end here, we can reflect on what you think we're doing next, Lee. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I would say there's
1: actually quite a bit we can still discuss about the Justinianic plague. I know you, Merle, are kind of tired, let's say, let's put it gently, of of discussing the Justinianic plague. But if if we do want to stay in the field, there are still sources that we that have yet to be examined really. There are new languages that can maybe should be brought into the discussion, then new methods some of which we've touched upon in in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences article, which we've maybe touched upon briefly in, in episode two here. So we could do that. Then we could obviously establish new collaborations with others that know and might want to collaborate with us.
0: Yeah, I think that's a decent series of paths forward. I just am getting tiredly.
1: So if if you are getting tired, I think one idea that I think this podcast has touched upon as well is to link the plague concept as we framed it in this article specifically, maybe more closely with what can be described as popular culture and really looking at the interface between academic research and this popular culture. So compare or look at similar trends, for example, in academic research on the Justinianic plague, for example, and in movies, as to use an example we've used earlier on in this episode.
0: Yeah, I'll just say I was poking around and I've seen that our work is now being added to various syllabi already in terms of teaching. So that's been heartening to see. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I, I guess, Merle, if, if you want to,
1: repeat this process, you could do that for other pandemics as well. And so there's like the Antonine plague and there's the Cyprian or Cyprianic plague that you could work on. You could work on the plague of Athens.
0: I'm okay. I only need one plague (laughs) in my life. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's been a really good overview of our article, both laying out the main thesis, the stakes, the particular features, the truisms, and kind of how this all developed. I'm always interested in getting into the head of researchers to know why they did what they did. So hopefully this has done that for our listeners. So as we conclude our episode, Lee, I thought given when this episode is taped and when it's going to come out, we might talk about the Christmas holiday season. I know probably Christmas is not a huge deal in Israel, but maybe you guys do something different.
1: So actually, my daughter's daycare is a multicultural daycare. So they have a huge Christmas tree right outside the daycare with lots of presents. And it's actually very nice, right? It has lights and presents and and ornaments and so on. And she really likes it. She really likes just staring at it.
0: Is this something you explicitly chose to do, was to have a multicultural daycare, or is it just the closest one down the street? I think it's a mix
1: of both. So we chose to live in this area because it was a more diverse part of Jerusalem, which is diverse, but also very segregated. So we chose to live here and then our daughter was born. I mean, we obviously knew she would be born in this area. So it was actually pretty simple. And we chose to stay here after our lease expired. Yeah. So Merle, and, and what are you doing for the holidays? Do you have any special plans now that Hanukkah is over and are you are you going to celebrate
0: Christmas in any way? No, I mean, we're not going to celebrate Christmas in any way, but the kids will be home. So it'll be you know, 10 days or so with the kids at home. So that'll be interesting. Why 10 days? Because everyone has off from essentially Christmas to New Year's in America. It's a pretty standard thing. I
1: heard there's a tradition in which uh, people who don't celebrate Christmas uh, go to Chinese restaurants on Christmas. Have you heard about that tradition? Yes, Lee.
0: I've heard about that tradition. I am Jewish and I live in America. Do you follow that tradition? Actually not, because Christmas happens to be my mom's birthday. And so we've always had family dinners on Christmas. Okay, that's nice. Yeah,
1: so a little different for us, but... Are those family dinners Chinese as well? No. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess this would be a good place to wrap things up in our really last episode to be published in 2020. And as usual, we'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding this podcast and our webmaster, Averodra Kanati.
0: Yeah, just wanted to give a special shout out to Cameron for doing a number of these episodes this fall. It's been really wonderful to work with him. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and enjoy your holiday Christmas vacation.